these people who are running construction companies that are running development companies that are builders in the area, they are in the business of picking up their phone, right? How, how many cold calls do you make when you're circle prospecting or whatever? And you're like, oh, okay, I made 100 calls, which most people never even get to 100 calls, which is crazy. Uh, make 100 calls, 10 people pick up the phone, right? If you make 100 calls from a permitting list, 80 of them will pick up the phone. Welcome to the Top Broker Podcast, where we interview top brokers from around the country and learn what separates them from the rest. I'm your host, Phil Wells, and today we're speaking with Jacob Weaver in the Seattle Bellevue area. Jacob is a wealth of information and particular with how to work with developers to get those brand new listings. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Jacob Weaver is the co-founder of the Weaver Burn Group in the Seattle Bellevue area. He has a growing team of nine and specializes in Seattle, Bellevue, and Kirkland with a focus on luxury new construction. He works with developers and handles a lot of investor transactions as well. Jacob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you got your start in real estate? Um, and yeah, I'd just love to hear your unique path uh, to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I know that uh, everybody's kind of got their own own way that they come into into real estate. Mine was through the investment side. So, um, you know, as, as you know, there's usually kind of two sides of the coin. There's the retail sort of business and then there's the investor side of the business. And I came in through the investor side. I've got a degree in electrical engineering, which was a great first career. Uh, learned a lot in school, uh, learned how to solve some problems, which is really all we all we do. So that was my first career as a, an electrical engineer and quickly realized within the first six months of, of being there uh, at my first first job that uh, this maybe wasn't the spot for me long term. Uh, you know, I put in all the work during college to to have this path and then uh, quickly realized that that path was uh, my ladder was leaning on the wrong building, if you know what I mean. And so yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I quickly saw the, the cap of where I could go. And so bought my first property, um, an investment property about six months in to my engineering career. And it was your very typical uh, sweat equity opportunity, right? It was like, I used like 6% down uh, for an owner occupied loan, put as little down as, as I possibly could. And, uh, and really just fixed up this little house. It was a, it was a two bed, one bath with an unfinished basement and refinished the floors, painted it, cleaned up the basement a little bit, uh, you know, redid all the, the landscaping and uh, lived there about five nights, uh, turns out. And then I had kind of a change of change of direction with uh, my now wife. And so uh, ended up just, just uh, renting it out to a couple of buddies um, who I was working with at the time. And it was it was a good fit. I, I quickly realized that uh, I really liked having people drop checks on my desk every month for for rental payments, and that was really the start. That was the start. Were, were you still working and thinking, okay, I'm going to keep working as an engineer and I'm going to buy more of these, or were you thinking, did the the switch start to you start to think maybe I'll get in maybe I'll get more involved in real estate? How did that was that like a a flip of the switch or was it kind of a a slow process? It was a flip of the switch, to be very okay. honest. Um, there was a moment where I was like, okay, I can make uh, X amount of dollars working 
you know, my typical hours. Or if I do overtime, then I get time and a half, right? And that is that is a very clear metric of, of what I could make in my engineering role. And that capped out, right? You run out of hours. And so as I was, you know, putting this property together, um, you start to network with contractors and you start to network with um, other people who are in the business. You know, I, I was not licensed at the time, so I ended up, you know, connecting really well with um, a real estate broker in the area who is really just, she was amazing. Um, her name was Lori Brown. She's down in the Colorado area now. She's an amazing woman and she definitely like kicked off a different way of thinking. And so the next step, like once that flip switched, I was like, okay, I've got two options. I can either work more overtime to make more money to go buy more properties, or I'm going to go double down on the real estate side. And then once that got moving and I had some, you know, a little bit of a buffer and a runway and I had some capital to work with, then that's when I, um, you know, left my day job. It took me about, from the time I really got serious about it, it took me about two years two years okay. to, to start making enough where I was like, okay, I could replace my day job income and I have a little bit extra to go invest. I'm putting some away as a little bit of a runway. It took me about two years to get to that point. And how was the market at that time? Was it, was it a hot market? Was it a, you know, yeah. What was it like? Yeah. It's funny looking back on it because I had no idea what the market conditions were. Like obviously now, you know, 10, I guess it's been, I've been in for about 10, 11 years, right? Now I care about what the market conditions are. I, I really am paying attention to everything that's going on in the news and the, the uh, you know, macroeconomics of everything that's happening, local economics of like where the opportunity actually lies. Then I was like, I don't know, it's, it's listed for a price, <laughs> you know? So yeah, looking back, yeah. I didn't, I, I had no idea what the market conditions were, um, you know, looking back on it now, it was 2012 when I first started buying real estate. And so 2012, it was just starting to kind of bounce back from 2008. There was still a lot of foreclosures that were getting kind of run through the system. There was uh, a little more confidence, buyer confidence coming back. And we were starting to see, you know, fix and flippers, you know, re renovators, builders kind of start to get back in um, after a few years of recovery. So that's generally where I started was kind of at the bottom when things were just starting to kind of get a pick up a little bit of steam again, but it was very different. So tell us a little bit about the early days. What was that? What was that like? A lot of trial and error. Honestly, I had I had a pretty decent network of people. You know, I joined um, kind of a mastermind group, you know, a pay to play group. Uh, which was which was great. You know, it jump started me. It, it immediately took me from where I was at with the mindset of the people I was around every day and you know, people I worked with uh, for my engineering career. And it immediately just took me right out of that group of people and put me into a group of people that were thinking differently. I remember the first the first uh, first week that I joined this program, I met somebody who made like over a million dollars on one deal. Like I'd never talked to anybody like that before, right? That was yeah. a completely new uh, paradigm. Where it's like, oh, the standard is not making a hundred k a year. Like that is, like as an engineer, it's like, oh, you're doing really well if you're making, you know, hundred mm -hmm. grand, which mm -hmm. that's still great money. There's no question. But the context all of a sudden changed, and I was in a group of people where 
like anything was now possible, right? You know, like you're just interacting with people that are thinking a little bit bigger and have different life experience than working a W2 job, right? So that was the most impactful part of kind of that early, early stage. It was how do I meet more people that are thinking bigger than I am? And how do I uh, jumpstart and kind of double down on this new way of thinking? That was really from 2012 to 2015. That was the whole thought process. It was just how do I, how do I meet more of these people? How do I just do what they're doing uh, with my own, you know, authentic self? That was that was kind of the that was the early days. Just like I need to just get some transactions under my belt. I need to learn the game. I need to learn what you know people are doing at this high level. What are they doing? How did they get there? It was really the first three years was just learning, just learning. And that's why it took me two, two and a half years to get out of that W-2 income. It was really because like you're just learning new things, right? You're just meeting new people. You're trying things, you're understanding what works, you're you're burning up marketing dollars and, and you're just trying things, right? So that was that was really the first couple of years. And then after 2015, from 2015 to about 2019 was another phase, which I got really into creative finance. And that was my way of saying, hey, I've learned a couple of things these last few years. Now how do I be competitive? So which aspects of creative finance were you finding most effective at that time? Yeah, yeah. So that middle section here, the creative finance was from about 2015 mm -hmm. to 2000. I mean, I, we, we still do a bunch of creative stuff, but uh, that was like a three year period where the market was starting to to pick back up, right? We we're seeing, you know, more you know, investors with the cash offer message. And I was realizing that there was actually this whole segment of, of sellers who we're reaching out to all of the yellow letters, the postcards, the the cash buyers, right? They would reach out to them, be like, I need a cash offer because of whatever circumstance. And there's a whole segment of buyers that like could not accept the offer, even if they wanted to. Either they'd be in a short sale position or it would put them in a really, really bad uh, position coming out of the transaction. And so there were a lot of people who were like, I, I, need, I need more cash or I need a different solution. And I realized that this whole segment of buyers, they were getting, you know, 10 or 12 cash offers. So cash, another cash offer was not the solution. And so I started looking at, okay, what, what problem are we actually trying to solve here? Because as you know, we've got two ends of the spectrum. You've got your cash offer investors, which are just trying to get a great deal on the purchase price to leave them enough room to actually make some money on the back end right? Accounting for all the risk. That is like one end of the spectrum. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the, the retail method where you, you, you make the property as desirable as possible. You market it as best you can. You get it to as many people as you can, and you list the property for full market value, right? We got two ends of the yep. spectrum. Mm -hmm. Everything else in the middle, there was nobody playing in that space, like at all, at all. And so, I started to learn about, okay, how can we use um, owner financing as one tool? How can I use mm -hmm. lease options? How can I use uh, subject to structures? How can I you know, invest in JV with people using different methods of um, uh, deed structures? So I, I was really playing around with, okay, 
if you can accept a cash offer or you you really don't want to and you your property is not good enough to list then like there's a whole spectrum of like really really good stuff right in the middle if you just put a different hat on and you say hey uh i need to creatively find another solution that actually fits your like solves your problem as a seller okay so can you give me an example of a seller that uh you dealt with that needed a creative solution and, and walk me through the how it went what one good example uh we purchased a a triplex purchased a triplex a few years ago and it was in a little bit rough shape it needed a couple of things it also had some tenant issues so the seller really didn't want to didn't didn't want to list it it was a, it was complicated to show which as you know you're not going to get market price if you can't show the property mm-hmm. right so she was unwilling to let it go at a cash offer but she didn't really have the resources she was an absentee owner um, she was unable to actually fix the tenant problem and some of the the conditional you know the property condition she had trouble getting through those hurdles so what we did is we actually came up with a purchase price that was much more it was closer to market it was closer to to market price but what we did was um we took over the payments for her first position loan which was about six she had she had about 60 percent loan to value so she had some equity um so we took over the the payments on the first position loan through a subject to structure and then uh we placed a second position owner finance note behind it to cover up about another uh, 35% of the purchase price. And then we came to the table with 5% down. And that was a property that once we fixed the tenant issues and got them back on track and paying again, uh, we, we cash flowed about, I don't know, three, 350 a door uh, for three doors. So thousand dollars a month cash flow. Um, and we came to the table with, I think it was like $11,000. Wow. That's it. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's it. So she had a property that she couldn't, for whatever reason, she really couldn't get the tenants to pay or, you know, she's just having trouble with the tenants. She doesn't want to just dump it, but she can't really show it either. Cause it has tenants, you know, yep. she did, and she got pretty much full value for it. Uh, so where was the mm-hmm. upside for, because she could she would offer that uh, owner financing for you guys. That's right. That's right. So we actually set up the owner financing in a really creative way that uh, we had interest only payments with a a four year balloon. And every year on the anniversary date, we actually made a principal payment because she had certain uh, things that she needed to pay every year, um, like her property taxes on the property she was living in. So she's like, I I need a chunk of cash um, every April basically to to pay my property taxes where i'm currently at Mm -hmm. and so that's just something we structured into that owner finance note was great we're going to make you interest only payments every month uh we're taking over kind of this this drag on your finances that's happening right now we'll we'll fix those problems and then um right before tax season right before your tax bill is due we're going to make a a chunk of the principal payment to you for the next next four years and so with owner financing you can structure things in all sorts of crazy ways that actually solve their issue. And her issue is like, great, I need a chunk of cash to pay my taxes. Right. And I imagine now, are you starting to see a lot of opportunities with 
kind of the interest rate, you know, sort of the golden handcuff interest rate situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, tell me yeah, about exactly. That. Uh, so we love looking for assumable loans right now because there's a lot of people like you're saying, they're like I would like to move, but I have a 3% interest rate or 2.8% interest rate. I don't want to give that up. So there's lots of ways that we can either keep that in place and help help them sell their property with a lease option so they can get a chunk of cash up front get a really good premium for the price <clears throat> if they're able to uh, structure the lease option for a buyer maybe they're not going to cash out right away but they'll make better cash flow uh, on a monthly basis while they then go upgrade their property mm -hmm. so that's that's one way we could do that um also if it's assumable then we can actually market the debt as part of the value in the property. And so looking at it from that, that standpoint, if you got a 3% loan and you've got a government backed loan, so USDA, VA, or FHA, then a lot of times like your listing broker should be listing that as an attribute of the property. And if they're not, then you need to probably get a different listing broker right, because right. that's a huge value that could be added to the transaction that you just work that into the purchase price. What's it worth? So say you have a $500,000 property and you have a, I don't know, 3% uh, delta between the prevailing rates and the, you know, the rate on the property and it's assumable. Yeah. I would say that it's worth 80% of the difference in monthly payment and it's equivalent in purchase price. So, okay. okay. Without pulling out a calculator, let's say, your $500,000 property, um, $500,000 property is market value. Now, if you were to sell it today's interest rate, it's worth 500, but they have a $450,000 note on it for 3%. Let's say that payment is $2,000. If somebody were to come and purchase the property and put another $450,000 note on it at six and a half percent, then that's going to be, I don't know, $3,600, let's say. I don't know. I'm just right, right, right. Or let's say the closer numbers here. Maybe close to 3000 just to make it yeah, easy. Yeah, let's or... say it's 3000 So you have a $1,000 difference in payment on the cash flow. So what is the equivalent in today's market of $1,000? It's probably like an $80,000 difference in principle to make up that extra $1,000 difference in payment. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. So you take what you could mortgage for the higher amount. It's kind of yeah. like if, if you have a house with like a crazy high HOA, like how much should it be discounted for like their thousand yeah. dollar a month HOA? It's like, well, how much yeah. more, could, how much more could you mortgage for that? And exactly. Plus a little bit, cause you're probably getting something for the HOA, but not like, you know, it's not like anyone yeah. really wants it, but okay. They mow the grass. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah, but it's, it's the opposite of that. It's like if the HOA paid you, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I so, like that. so in that, in that scenario, um, you know, so let's say a thousand dollar difference is probably $80,000 in additional borrowing power in that scenario. So if we take 80% of that, maybe 75% of that, that would maybe be a $60,000 value swing on the purchase price. So now instead of your $500,000 market value, you might be able to sell it for 550 or 560. Right, right. No, I could, right? I could totally, Which is a huge difference. totally see that. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's Huge like difference. It's like if you were buying down the mortgage, but not just for a couple of years, you're buying it down for the whole 30 years or for the rest years, of the, payment. the rest of the, yeah. Do you know, have any idea how many mortgages are in that assumable category? That is a great question. I don't have a, a number for that. It definitely depends on the market that you're in because you're right. The conforming loan limits, once you get to the really high price point stuff, then you're in jumbo loans. And so, uh, and most people in higher price point markets are using conventional loans typically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it does matter the, the area that you're in, but there's a lot of places in our country where there's a lot of VA loans. There's a lot of um, FHA and, and low down payment type buyers. They're great markets for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. transitioning a bit, uh, what tools do you have that uh, have a big impact on your business? Mm. Yeah, good, good question. Um, honestly, we are pretty old school when it comes to how we run our business. And this is part partially downside for for us. We don't have as many uh, typical systems in place as a lot of people because we found that the the demographic that we like working with now is um, a lot of a lot of builders, a lot of builders, um, and a lot of that is very personal relationship, right? It's you're you're building a whole high level of trust. You're working with investors and developers who. Um, don't really want your automated messages, right? Yeah. It's like they just want, they want the real touch, want the real touch. So a lot of our business is based on, on that. It's like actually picking up the phone and talking to our clients, which I think is a nice touch. Um, yeah. So in terms yeah. of tools, I can't say that we like have a secret sauce for that. Most of it is um, we do use some, some permitting websites that I think if you're trying to get into like the development game or development space or working with um, builders and, and higher end type properties, one of the ways you can do this is, uh, and this goes for anybody pretty much in any city, like figuring out what is the platform or what is the process to uh, look up permitting data. Every jurisdiction is a little bit different but we have found that that is a great way to build connections and meet new people that are are building or developing the type of product that you want to be selling. That makes a lot of sense. So you figure yeah. out it has to be, but isn't it usually an LLC or some, like how do you dig behind the LLC and figure out uh, yeah. who actually owns this thing? Yeah, so you can go to the Secretary of State in, in most, most states, and you can actually look up LLCs and figure out who is the governing body or who's the, the president of, you know, the, the entity. So we do that and then combine that with, um, you know, a lot, Phil, this is like, people don't realize how much better cold calling is when you have the right list and the right messaging. Okay. Right. Right. A lot of these times you can look up like sometimes in the permitting data, at least for city of Seattle and Bellevue, it literally has the phone number and email address of whoever submitted the permits. Like doesn't get much easier than that. It's not really a cold call. If you say, Hey, I, I see, you know, at 6436, um, you know, Jefferson Avenue, 
I see there's something going on. I'm local in the area. I've worked for so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. I'd love yep. to offer you my business once it's ready for, for sales. It's a little bit less of a, hi, uh, you know, you don't have any mission. You don't have any goal with just the yep. regular cold call. Besides, right. maybe they want to buy or sell for themselves. This, you're targeting a specific person and mm -hmm. you have time ahead of time to think about your value proposition and say, hey, here's why you should listen to me. And they're Absolutely. probably not getting, they're not getting a lot of these calls, I doubt. I mean, or, or it's are they? surprising. No, it's, it's surprising. Uh, every, every like builder and investor, they have their own little group of, of their team, right? But guess what they're actually interested in? They're interested in a deal. So you might be calling a permitting list. Um, and the reason we like this, there's, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, um, these people who are running construction companies that are running development companies that are builders in the area, they are in the business of picking up their phone, right? Mm. How, how many cold calls do you make when you're circle prospecting or whatever? And you're like, oh, okay, I made a hundred calls, which most people never even get to a hundred calls, which is crazy. Uh, make a hundred calls, 10 people pick up the phone, right? If you make a hundred calls from a permitting list, 80 of them will pick up the phone. Okay. So first of all, barrier, barrier of like the hurdle to get somebody on the phone much, much lower because these people are in the business of picking up their phone because they have to solve problems throughout the day. Right? So way easier to get them on the phone. First of all, uh, second of all, they are interested in, uh, the revenue of their business. Right? So if you, pick up the phone, Phil, and you're like, Hey, I have a deal for you. They're like, okay, you got, you got five minutes. Tell me about your deal. Like what seller, <laughs> you know, you, you got to fight for five minutes when you are cold calling, um, sellers or buyers out of an apartment building or like it's, it's tough cold calling. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. But if somebody's like, Oh, you, you've got something interesting. That's going to help my business. I will listen to you. And if it's a deal, I will buy it from you. Right. 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 And then once you actually sell them a deal, then it's all about personal relationship, which you have to, you have to build that personal relationship in order to get the, the back end listing, right. Or to sell them a second thing, you have to do a good job. Don't get me wrong because they're, they're usually more critical of that than ever because they've worked with a number of different brokers throughout their career. But if you can provide the value on the front and actually bring them something they need for their business, they will pick up the phone. And they will, they will buy it if it's a deal and they will give you a, a, a first shot. And that is where that, that cracks the door into the further relationship, uh, with the backend listings and with, um, referrals from them and from their network. That is, that's, that's the play. Sure. Sure. I mean, I was thinking yeah. about this just from the perspective of calling these developers just to get the backend listings. You know, if mm. I think that it, that may work. But I like your approach even better. If you have if you have something to offer them of nice developable lots, how do you get that though? Okay, and this is where it gets. This is the the, the beauty of the model, right? All right, Phil, you're the developer. You pick up the phone and say, "Hey, Phil, this is Jacob Weaver. I work with a number of developers. Um, can I have just two minutes of your time today?" Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. When when he well, talk to me, talk to all me. All right. Hey, here here's the deal. Here's the deal. I've got a I've got a lot just down the street. It's a infill development. Uh, it's flat. It's got no trees. Utilities on the right side of the street. Um, I can get it for you know 
$600,000 and the end value will be 2.8. Yeah, I can pay like 420. That, I can pay, yeah, but I can pay like 425 for that kind of thing. Okay, great. So you're looking for, for properties, like you're looking to, to purchase like in the, like less than 500. Uh, let me ask you, are you interested more in closing on things where you have to permit them or do you want them already permitted and you just close right then? Oh, I do all that. I do all the, the permitting. Okay, great. So you, you want the upside of the permitting then? Yeah. Okay. Um, is there a particular, is this neighborhood, I know this price isn't quite right for you, but is this a neighborhood that you generally work in? Yeah, uh, this neighborhood, Coral Grove, uh, Pheasant Lane, and Deerview Circuit. Okay, perfect. That is good to know. So um, just out of curiosity, um, you know, I've got a couple things that I'm, you know, obviously I make calls like this to other builders. Um, so now that I know a little bit more about what you're you're looking for, you don't really want permit ready. You know, you're looking for under 500 on the acquisition in these couple neighborhoods. Um why don't I go back? I'm going to, I'm going to go search my database. I've got a couple more that might be a fit for you. Um, tell me since I've got you on the phone, uh, do you have anything on your books right now? That's that you'd rather get off. Do you have anything that you'd actually want to get off your books to either deleverage or uh, any projects that like aren't quite in your wheelhouse right now? Ah, um, you know, I do. There's, there's one that I broke ground on that I don't think we're going to be able to make money off of, uh, but no one else is going to want it either. It's kind of a dud. Okay. Well, Hey, do you mind just giving me the address? I'll go drive the property. And, uh, you know, we've got a, a bunch of different types of developers in different stages. So, uh, do you mind if I take a look at it and, and we see if we can find a buyer for you on that? Sure. Sure. It's uh, 3254 pleasant lane. Great. Okay. So Phil, um, what we did just there is mm -hmm. you are now a buyer and a seller. And now I've got your pheasant lane deal that I can go pitch to the next, next builder. Right. Right. Next person I pick up the phone with, Hey, I've got this thing. I'm on pheasant lane, uh, builder. He's looking to offload it. Uh, it might have to be structured a little bit differently. sounds like he might've overpaid for it a little bit, but if I can get you to close that permits or if I can structure this in a way uh, you know, he's got a bunch of work product, a hundred thousand dollars worth of work product. He's probably already in it for, I can get that for you. Take a lot of risk out of the project for you. Um, because he's already got a head start on it. Right. right. Now we can start structuring that overpriced deal in a way that, okay, maybe we're not going to close on it for another 18 months. Like let's get it through permitting that takes all the risk out of the deal, which now all of a sudden it might be viable for the next builder that we just pitched it to. Right. right? So when I'm calling these people, I'm looking for what they want to offload and and also what their buying criteria is because now they're buyers and sellers and that's how you get the inventory for the next builder you ask what what they're trying to sell so these builders they don't talk to each other a whole lot they talk to you and you're this you know you're this broker <laughs> between them but it makes a lot right? of sense you know <laughs> yeah. yeah actually doing your job uh yeah no it makes a lot of sense <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh because you're yeah. you know you're putting the time in you're talking to these high value people who are too busy to be just out networking or they don't have the personality for it they want to build they want to build and honestly one of the things that we see most often is that um there are builders who will lock up deals. We've got really long permitting times in Seattle specifically. Bellevue's definitely better, but I'm sure you have this in New York. Based on the little bit I know about the bureaucracy out there, um, it oh, yeah. probably takes a couple of years to get something permitted. 
Yeah, no, it, it realistic. Yeah, it takes a long time. So how often do business plans change? Do markets change? Uh, like we, we have builders that will start permitting on a project like that. And then they'll finish all of the other projects that they have in the area and they decide that their business model actually should go to a higher price point neighborhood or they want to go further north or they want to stay south. And now they've got this project in permitting. They're like, ah, yeah, I started permitting it, but we've kind of moved all of our crews, you know, 30 miles north into a, a new area that we think is more viable and has better upside. But we've got this thing in permitting like we don't really want to run our crews on a 30 mile stretch back and forth. Cause we're just going to be paying them a bunch extra. It's going to piss off all of our crews. You know, that is the perfect thing to get off their books. Right. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And so just having those conversations with builders and developers, you would be surprised what people are willing to sell. Um, if, if they just don't fit their model anymore, they're like, yeah, I could make money on that, but it's kind of the pain in the ass. Right like, yeah, we, we could do it and we will if we don't sell it, but we would be open to an offer. And that's the perfect conversation starter for the next call that you make. It's like, hey, I've got something down in Georgetown or I've got something over in, you know, downtown Kirkland and they're only building up north now, right? It's it's a real conversation and it, it starts momentum and it allows you to build relationships with um, new developers and people who are a little higher up the food chain which is the whole point as a broker. It's like to get better contacts, to have a better network, to uh, to hopefully increase your ticket price, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's fun to sell the new stuff, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's pretty cool because you're usually on the- It is. I find if you're usually on the higher end of, you know, for us, it's two bedroom apartment, three bedroom apartment, but for you, you know, call it a 3,000 square foot house. If you're on the higher end of that 3,000 square foot house price per square foot, then if buyers come to that open house, you can then say, oh, well, this isn't quite right for you, but you can show them all the other nice stuff. Whereas if they're on the yep. lower end of it, there isn't much left. They have to make more compromises. You know, it's it's a little bit of a harder job to find that it buyer is. or something. It is. And you, you kind of hit it on the head because that's where our retail business stems from. Right? We don't we don't send out a lot of direct mail. We don't do a lot of um, retail type branding. It's mostly from open houses and from sign calls and from natural business that comes from the fancy listings that are finished up. Yes. And when you're at an open house and like you said, are talking about what is the market actually doing? If you've spent the time and you're making calls in the permitting list, you know what's happening in the city. You're like, I, I know which builders are have X amount of permits out. I know how many dadus or you know townhouse developments are going in in this certain pocket i understand the zoning codes of what's what's happening and guess what when that retail buyer comes in that can't quite afford the new construction you can speak very very intelligently about what's actually happening in the market at a higher level than most brokers yeah and guess what your conversion rate goes way up can you tell me a little bit about um you know, boots on the ground, how things are, are looking in the Seattle Bellevue area market wise. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, okay. So we're seeing the mid tier luxury get hit a little bit harder than the higher end luxury. And then like sub one and a half million, like under one and a half million that's priced well, that's desirable moving quickly. And we're seeing like 
one to three offers within the first week or two, which is great market. And then in the higher end, like over three and a half million, I would say that there's still some decent movement in that like 2 million to 3 million mark. The buyer demographic is typically strong W2 income earner households. And so we've seen, uh, you know, some tech layoffs, we've seen uh, some shifting in that, in addition to the lack of buying power, because once you get over like three million, three and a half million, you start to see the people with more sophisticated finances, you know, that can borrow from their business or they sold a company or, um, you know, they're, they're like C-level executive type, type buyers. Mm -hmm. And getting back to developers, uh, are they still buying right now or is that kind of slowed down? Do you have anything in the pipeline or that you're working on there? Yeah. My partner just, just locked one up. Really, really good. I think it's another nine for uh, nine luxury homes. Should be sweet. Uh, they'll be like two point, probably two point four a piece. Wow, that's nine great. lots. Yeah. So when yeah. you he sold the lots, they're going to be building those. Those will be ready in like a couple of years, or how long does that take? Yeah. So these ones are <clears throat> these ones are basically raw land. They've got they've done a little bit of a um, uh, little bit of work. Like one of the so it's a three lot assemblage. Mm -hmm. One of the lots is at P plat, so preliminary plat approval. So it still needs engineering design for the roads and the uh, the sidewalks and the dirt work. So once that gets approved, then the whole um, plat will be approved, and then can apply for vertical permits. So it's it's a ways out. Mm -hmm. But then the other two lots that are associated with it, um, they're raw. So they. <laughs> They're not even at P-plot yet, so they're a few years out. But that's pretty nice because then you know that in like 2028 or whatever, you're going to have some stuff to sell. You know, like it builds the pipeline, you know, for long. On out. Honestly, if you can figure out the development game, it it smooths out all the ups and downs of real estate because you're right. You can plan. I mean, developers, you know, their projects get pushed back and you sell them for different prices than you might expect. But honestly, just knowing that they're there and you have stuff to work on and you are preparing for upcoming listings, it's huge. It takes right. out a lot of the anxiety that I think a lot of brokers feel when they're trying to get their next deal. Right. Like yeah. when, you, when you work yeah. with retail clients, they're like, what do they say? Like once every seven years they move mm -hmm. and you have no idea when or who is actually going to be your repeat client versus developers. Like they'll buy when it's a deal. So bring them a deal and they'll buy it, right? You always can pitch something to them. You can always keep momentum going. And then when you do lock one in and they actually close on it, then you know that, like, okay, this is going to be a 15-month project approximately. So like next year I have this in the pipeline or I've got this townhouse development. We'll have 10 listings. Approximately this is what the revenue will be and we can plan for it, which sure, sure. takes a lot of stress out. Can you share with me, like, say you get a, town, a 10 listing, you know, row is, you know, are you tending to charge like 1% for that on your side? Or is there, is it just kind of depends on the deal? Or do you have a certain standard that you do for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Because developers and builders, they, they need to make money. Right? They, they will not continue to be your client if you don't sell them a good deal. And if they don't make money on it. Mm -hmm. So we generally work on a sliding scale. 
So we get bonused out if we do really well. And then we do um, do a little bit of discounting to make sure that the project goes goes smoothly. But in general, it's usually never less than a point and a half. Okay. Um, and then if we dual represent, which we do um, on occasion, then we usually give about a point and a half back. So, and then anywhere we have different price tiers, we're like, okay, if we sell this out for um, X amount of dollars and we do really well, then we make 3%, you know, on our side. And if we hit this mark, then maybe it's two and a quarter and maybe here it's 2% or something like that. And so okay, sliding scale, which, yeah. yeah, it incentivizes us to do, do a really good job, right? Because on these new construction listings, like that could be, you know, $40,000 swing mm-hmm. in a commission, you know, from selling it for full price or over list versus, you know, under. So that, I feel like that's a fair way to do it because it, it, it incentivizes us to hit the, the prices that we originally pitched to them. And you offer it to the Cobrope community, like, uh, to the MLS at a certain, and that just stays the same, right? Generally. Yeah. So when things were really hot and based on price point, it's usually between two and a half and 3% mm-hmm. on the selling office commission. Do you do like caravans and stuff for brokers when you have one of these, uh, developments opening up? Yeah. Yeah. We, we like to at least throw kind of a, a welcome party when mm-hmm. it first comes on the market just to get some people in the door, right? How often do you put something on the, on the market and there are, there are brokers with buyers for that property that just don't see it in the MLS. It happens. It happens. Like even with all the filters, even with your clients looking, um, it happens. And so what we try to do is we, we figure out who is, um, who's playing in that demographic most often. And if nothing else, like just inviting them, even if they don't show up now, they know about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that's one thing we, we do like to do. We do throw, um, you know, kind of social media parties where, you know, we'll have, you know, 15, 20 brokers all posting about it, which is a good yeah, way to start yeah. pick off a listing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do the same yeah. thing and we'll do, you know, with drinks and, you know, and then we did like little goodie bags with neighborhood gift certificates too, for like the different places in the oh. neighborhood. And, you know, it's kind of that's makes good. it feel a little bit different. Um, and then what I found though is, we invited the top hundred agents for a neighborhood. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the ones that have sold above, you know, 2 million in the last two years or whatever. And we got mm-hmm. like two RSVPs and I was like, look, I've already bought a cheese plate and all this wine and like more than two are coming <laughs> more than two yeah. are coming. <laughs> yeah. So I just started texting and calling the agents. I was just like, Hey, do you yeah. know we're doing this thing? And they're like, Oh, I didn't even, yeah, I, I just, I must've missed the email. I'd love to come. Definitely will come. We'll come, we'll come, we'll come. And we had that place filled with people just from the actual, yep. you know, you have to actually, people are busy. You got to call them. You got to, you know. And I think you make a, an amazing point. Like if, if you're a real estate broker who's struggling to get started, pick up your damn phone. Yes. Right. It's like, it's like pick up your phone and call people and actually have a personal touch with them. Your CRM is great. Yes. But that is like mass scale. You're looking for one to 2% conversion rates on, on that. Like if you pick up the phone, you're like, Hey Phil, I'm having a party. 
this party's for you, right? Mm -hmm. That's a different level of touch. And if you are struggling to get started in real estate or you're looking to, to level up, like you got to pick up your phone and actually get out in front of people. You, know, you, you have to make contact. You have to remind them of the email you sent. You have to mm -hmm. go the extra mile and it goes a long way. Yeah, especially if you have extra time, then you should um, be on the phone. You should definitely be on yeah. the phone. Uh, okay, so just a couple more questions for you. Um, if someone from, you know, is listening to the show from Milwaukee or something, and they're like, I got this tough deal. I feel like it's dead. I don't really know what's going on, but I feel like there's a creative solution here. Can they call you? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so for a couple of reasons, first of all, uh, I think it's important as a real estate broker to understand what's happening in other parts of the country. You probably feel the same way being in a major hub. Like you have no idea mm -hmm. where you're going to refer clients out of New York or where they're going to come from. Yeah. Right. There's probably some hot spots that, that tend to be the case. But if you can speak intelligently about, you know, what's happening in Dallas, right? Honestly, people in New York probably want to know what's happening in Dallas because maybe it's a great rental market or maybe there's something that they're missing and they're like, oh, we could there could be a play here. Either I'm moving there or I have family moving there or I want to buy investment property. Like you knowing about Dallas being a broker in New York, that's important. So yes, I'm happy to help others who, who just need to see that extra little bit of vision, right? Sometimes it's just, it's not a big tweak on the transaction. It's just like, oh, if you just structured this one or two terms in a slightly different way and be like, oh yeah, you, you actually have this resource here or this tool or, you know, this governmental whatever to like bring into the transaction and it could make your deal work. Right. And you're just one little step away from it. And, and that's where I think we as brokers in a community like need to be collaborative. Right. Like I didn't get to where I'm at on my own. You didn't either. No, nope. nobody does. So you gotta, you, you give and receive in this business. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? And it's, I, I yeah. find that because it's a commission, based we're so used to, we're we're used to working first and getting paid later that i find it is a fairly you know a lot of people are willing to help and and you know give an hour of their time or or whatever just yeah. you know might as well and people think of us as these you know these greedy real estate agents who are out there for you know their commission check but honestly i I've, I've really found there's a lot of people who are really open with their time a golden strategy that you that you gave you know with the developer stuff just hey here it is for free you know go do it <laughs> go do and it and give me a call when you want to structure your deals and i'll help you right it's <laughs> it's just it's just how this should work you know we're here to help our clients and provide better service and and by helping each other that's how that happens yeah absolutely yeah um well so to that end if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you what's the best way yeah, so um, getting more and more active on um, on Instagram. So Jacob.Weaver.Realtor. That's that's probably the best way. Just go ahead and give me a follow and send me a direct message. That'd be great. Um, also, you can check out our uh, our YouTube channel. We are pushing out a lot of uh, creative and investor builder related um, uh, content. So that uh, at our Weaver Burn Group uh, YouTube channel. That is where you can catch catch some tips and tricks if you're looking to get into the space of um, of development and new construction and luxury and doing things a little bit differently. Then you can follow us there as well. Great. Uh, and how about an email if people want to just get directly in touch? 
Yeah, perfect. It's going to be jacob.weaver at exprealty.com. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jacob. Uh, look forward to having you back on and seeing how things are going. Yeah, this, this was fun. Thanks for the invite. And um, yeah, if you ever need anything, let me know. Thanks for listening to the Top Broker Podcast. If you want to get in touch or suggest a guest for the show, email phil at topbrokerpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.